Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Psalm 109, the 109th Psalm. We come to our Psalm of the Month, which is Psalm 109. And uh, if you've been with us, you understand the reason for this. We sing out of the psalm book. It is the psalm book. It is the songbook of the Christian church. And 1 Corinthians 14.15 implores us to sing with the Spirit and sing with the understanding also. We are to understand what it is that we sing. And so we consider a psalm each month here at DRPC. So with that brief, brief introduction, please turn to Psalm 109. And to give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, these are the very words of God Almighty. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Hold not thy peace, O God, of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let the strangers spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing like as with his garment, so let it come into his bowels like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord and of them that speak evil against my soul. But do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, Deliver thou me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declineth. I am tossed up and down as the locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth of fatness. I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. Let mine adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude. 
for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. O God of heaven, we come to a psalm that is difficult for us. And we pray that in the preaching of the word, this psalm would be turned from a difficulty and into our joy. Help us, Father, by the preaching of the word, know the very counsel of God. We pray then that you would bless your minister who preaches, that he would preach in the spirit of Christ, that he would preach in the power of the Holy Ghost, and that he would preach all the counsel of God, not shying away from that which is hard hard for him to preach in the flesh, but instead proclaiming the very testimony of God. We pray as well for the people of God that we would, by humble hearts and spirits, be a teachable people today to know the counsel of God and to embrace it warmly as the very counsel of our Father in heaven. And so, Father, that Christ be magnified and that your church would be saved. We pray that you would help me speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as you have probably heard in the reading of it, Psalm 109 is one of the main imprecatory psalms in the Bible. In fact, for reasons that we will discover, you might even say it is the imprecatory psalm in the Bible because it concerns Judas Iscariot. More on that later. But children, boys and girls, do you know what an imprecatory psalm is? The answer is it is a psalm that calls for God's judgment and even curses. They are prayers and praises by which the people of God seek the judgment of God. And we are we have to be clear here. These can be the hardest of the Psalms for the Christian to grapple with. For we who have been touched by the grace of God, and once enemies of God ourselves, enemies liable to His wrath, uh, but saved purely by grace, and told by our Lord and Savior in both Testaments to love our enemies. To pray these psalms and even to sing them may well trouble your heart. But we are called by God to understand their use, for they are given for our use. And these psalms, as you might be aware, are relatively rare, and we have not preached on one in a very long time, giving you a sense of how rare they are. Because the thrust of the Bible in both Testaments is that believers bless and love even their enemies. And in our psalm, you have heard it yourself. David had blessed and loved those that would become his enemies. This is the Christian in both Testaments. But as his kindness here was being returned with an incorrigible and satanic evil, he now pleads with God, that such men would be removed from the earth. Psalms like this remind us that there are times that come upon the church and the people of God where the Spirit will move us to open up our psalm book with uh, fear and trembling, to pray and sing to the Lord of judgment to arise, that the apple of His eye, His beloved, would be delivered from utter a holocaust and annihilation. And we plead here in the psalm with the Lord of heaven to whom vengeance belongs that he would do it and not we ourselves committing vengeance to the Lord. 
And so as we have received many new members since the imprecatory psalms have been preached here, rather than a thorough exposition of Psalm 109, I will spend much of our time, much of our time understanding psalms like this, and then I'll give you an overview of the psalms themes much more briefly than we usually do. So with that then, our theme is Christ's song of judgment. Christ's song of judgment. And we'll consider it under three heads. First is its difficulties. Second is its themes. And third is its uses. First, difficulties. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that this psalm will, t- uh, will test our teachableness. And I think that was a very, very good way of putting it. It's a helpful thought on how we deal with challenging texts in the Scripture. When the Scriptures trouble us, in other words, will we be teachable? Will we be teachable? Christian, uh, if you have trouble with a psalm like this, think of how the Lord has made you teachable in times past. Once you were troubled with doctrines like uh, the doctrine of hell, eternal hell, as the reward sinners earn for even the least of their sins, an eternity of agony in hell. We've all had to come to grips with that. The Holy Spirit made us teachable. And what did he do when he made you teachable? He caused you to flee to the arms of Jesus for salvation. But what we must never do when we come to a difficult text is either to skip it, cut it out of our Bibles, or to sanitize it away. Consider how we're prone to do such things, right? Consider the judgment of the whole earth in Noah's time. How greatly we sanitize it, friends. Uh, Over our children's cribs, we hang cute pictures of the ark with giraffes and hippos in it. But do we tell them of a drowned sea of men, women, and even children under the ark? Do we tell them of the utter holiness of God and how he saved his people in judgment that they themselves deserved through the waters of salvation? And today... How many of us try to clean up after God, so to speak, and explain away things like uh, the prohibition against same-sex attraction and transgenderism? It's uncomfortable to say and hear that such things are an abomination to God. But God is holy. His word is holy. And we are not. His word stands in judgment over us. And we do not stand in judgment over it. And I was thinking about this, when it comes to the New Testament, it's almost as if we have selective amnesia, friends. We especially sanitize it, and we gloss over so much, and we even make Jesus Christ out to be some sort of prototypical hippie-like character. And our mind forgets there's an entire chapter devoted to him declaring woe on Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe unto you, he said, fools, he called them. He cursed Jerusalem and said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He cursed a fig tree representing apostate Israel. And what of Judas? What did Jesus say of him? Woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man, what? If he had not been born. Matthew 26, 24. That is the God of vengeance come in the flesh, declaring a man accursed, utterly so. So let us remain teachable 
Let us not sanitize our Bible. Let us go wherever Scripture leads. Otherwise, and church history has given you 2,000 years to see this pattern. To do it is to make that leap to universalism, which is actually a very short hop indeed. It begins in rejecting scriptures like the psalm. And Satan's angels, agents rather, what, they transform like, like their father into agents that look like angels of light. You know, come to say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think these things, you shouldn't use such things. But really, what they're trying to do is to make you say, has God really said when it comes to words like this? So let's not avoid the psalm, but embrace it and understand it for our edification and use. So in this heading, let me give you seven points to consider concerning an imprecatory psalm like this that you might understand it. And our first point is where we must begin because we're prone to forget it. This is the Holy Scripture. It comes with all the qualities of Scripture then. These words we read, no matter how dreadful they are to our flesh, they are the words of God. They are God-breathed. You must read the words of the psalm as holy words, inspired words, infallible words, inerrant words. Why? Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Literally, boys and girls, that means God breathed in the Greek language. And boys and girls, if you were listening, how much Scripture is God breathed? All. You see, these are ultimately not David's words, but the Holy Spirit's. In 2 Samuel 23, 1-2, David says he was the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, the, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. And in Matthew 24, Jesus confirms that David spake by the Spirit. These words, then, are as Christian as they can be. Why? Because they are God's words to us, for us. And in that then, we find another quality of the Scripture. They are necessary words, words that you cannot ignore, words that were made for our use. Second Timothy 3.16 continues and says, All Scripture is what? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. These words, then, are part of all the counsel of God for our perfection and for our use. They are instructing us in righteousness. And no one, friends, wants these words erased more than Satan, for it is used against agents of his, like Judas. And so he is going to say to you, hath God really said? So, the psalm is inspired of the Holy Spirit and for our perfecting. And our second point is that these psalms were given for corporate worship. The psalms inspired title says it, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. And you have to think then of what that means. This psalm was given to the leader of worship in the temple. Beloved, God wanted and desired to be worshipped with these words. Corporately. Now that is something to come to grips with. God has been worshipped and shall ever be worshipped with these words. You cannot think that God's character has changed 
and that he does not want them today. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. If he did, otherwise he would no longer be God. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Old Testament ethic, in other words, is the very same as the New Testament ethic because the God who gives it is the same God. For instance, when Jesus taught us the law summarized by love, love for God and love for neighbor, where did he turn? He returned to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. In other words, both Psalm 109 and the Sermon on the Mount come from the same heart. Yet some men will call a psalm like this sub-Christian. We must reject the notion, though, that the Old Testament had any different ethic than the New. That will lead you to heresies like Martianism, which teach that the God of the Old Testament differs from the God of the New Testament. One was wrath and one was love. God forbid that we would ever go that direction. Or... And here's the thing, this is the implication, right? That the people of God in the Old Testament were sub-Christian brutes. Now, what differs in the Old Testament was its worship was different because it pointed us to Jesus. But the morals and ethics of both Testaments, the same, because they are the morality of an unchanging God. You know, And those things that change in worship are just those things that were ceremonial that pointed us to Christ. So third then, Consider the godly character of the man who penned it. The title says it was David, who the Spirit called the sweet psalmist of Israel. You think of this man. He refused to take personal vengeance on his own enemies, didn't he? He refused to kill Saul, who hounded him mercilessly and tirelessly. Yes, David lusted for Bathsheba, and that led to the murdering of Uriah as a cover for it. And that is a great stain on the man. But the Bible never commends him for such a thing. And he did repent before the Lord when Nathan came to confront him with the word of God. But even in that, David, for all his faults, when you look through First uh, and Second Samuel, he's never gripped with a vindictive spirit. His treatment of a man like Saul and a man of his house, Shimei, shows us this. The Spirit called David the man after God's own heart, a man of the Spirit of Christ. And David demonstrates that like Christ, he often turned the other cheek. And speaking of Christ, fourth, these psalms find their ultimate meaning in Jesus. This psalm specifically finds its fulfillment in the Lord's betrayer. Psalm 109 is traditionally called the Judas or Iscariot Psalm. Why? Because Peter considered the curse on Judas, and he said in Acts 1, 18 through 20, Now this man, speaking of Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akaldama, which is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, here it is. Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man therein, and his bishopric, that is office, let another take. The gruesome fate of Judas, even on the earth, was the fulfillment of Psalm 109 and verse 8, which we'll consider later. 
As Jesus said in Matthew 26, 24, it would be better for Judas if he had never been born. Perhaps a more solemn thing would be think of Judas's fate in hell even now. But this gives you then a key to a twofold use of using this psalm. The first is you sing it united to Christ. You sing of his betrayal and you sing of his sufferings. We sing of his humiliation necessary for our salvation. When we consider the themes of the psalm, and as I read it, I pray you have heard it, you find tremendous pain. You find tremendous hurt. The psalmist loved the man who betrayed him and reviled him for no cause. His betrayer for no cause wanted to see him consumed and he returned evil for his love. When we sing it, we see that our Lord suffered not for himself, but for us. That he was betrayed by a kiss, by a hateful, vengeful man who had no cause to hate the Savior. Why? That we might be saved. And we enter then and know the sufferings of Christ when we sing it. It's not David's pain that we sing of. It is Christ's sufferings. The second part is, we know what Jesus has taught us, that whatsoever is done to his body is done to himself. To persecute his church is to persecute Jesus. And as he confronted Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The ire of the Son of God is raised when his beloved is persecuted. Zechariah 2.8, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. These imprecations then you're going to hear are not used, and boys and girls, be clear on this, against those who irritate us or antagonize us in some way. You know, the the person who's our rival at work or is cruel to us or mean to us about various things. No, such we love our enemies, as Jesus preached, and we turn the other cheek. But sometimes, beloved, God's people go beyond turn the other cheek and they just want us all annihilated. They want the memory of Jehovah erased and they want his church raised to the ground. And that's what such psalms are meant for. And that leads us to our fifth point. This psalm is not for private vengeance. Romans 12.19 is very plain. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Such psalms, then, are how we give place unto wrath, and we leave vengeance in God's hands. Imprecatory psalms remove the desire for personal vengeance from our hearts and commits it to the Lord where it belongs. You notice here, David is saying nothing about taking up the sword himself. He's saying, God, you do it. You take vengeance on those who want to persecute your church. Yes, we must hope and pray for the repentance of God's enemies first and foremost. You find, again, David tender towards his enemies. Uh, But the time will come, and the time has come, many points in church history where uh, the Spirit makes it clear there is no stopping certain men. They are implacable. They are like Goliath, who would have stopped at nothing to destroy Israel. 
And some murderous men, and we praise God for this, like Saul, the Apostle Paul, will be converted. But let's ask the question, because we, we praise the Lord for such things, but where did the Lord's wrath against Paul go for his murderous actions? Did, did vengeance just disappear? Did God say, well, I guess I won't have vengeance on him? No, it fell on the Son of God at the cross. You see, vengeance will be done. The question is whether it will be on this particular person or group of people, or it will fall on God's own Son. But God will have vengeance, and that's an astonishing thing. And I think that deepens Paul's appreciation when he said that the Son of God gave himself up for me in love, because he deserved what we read of here in the psalm, these imprecations, those coals of burning fire. So when we pray against the enemies of God and we pray for their repentance or their removal, we know that the heaping coals of God's fire will either remain on these men or they will have been heaped on our Savior at Calvary for three hours. But vengeance will be done. Sixth, you need to observe the New Testament contains imprecations. There are many in the New Testament and I've already showed Jesus' use of them. But there are others in Romans 3.8, Paul declares that certain men will be damned and not rather as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. What does he say of them? Whose damnation is just. In like manner, in Psalm 109, one of its themes is that the wicked are in the habit of slandering the, the godly. You see that even in our society. They call those who want to follow Christ, uh, they call them wicked. And so Paul says, here's this imprecation against those that will slander gospel laborers. And of course, perhaps the most famous one in Galatians 1, that those who preach another gospel, even if it were an angel from heaven, what is that person? What is that person? Let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. Why? Because such men, they oppose the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ. And it shows us, again, the use of these psalms, not for our personal hurts, right, but against the work of Christ and his gospel. And in the book of Acts, in Acts 4.25, the disciples, they were singing Psalm 2. Why? Because the Jewish leaders, they raged against the church and the work of the gospel. So they sang Psalm 2. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Well, very interesting things about that is what did they call the Jewish leaders there? Heathens. Showing that even if you are, uh, uh, whatever you are, whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you, if you are not in Christ, you are a heathen. But you know how Psalm 2 continues, don't you, friends? If you do not kiss the Son, what happens to you? You will perish in the way. They sang an imprecation. Then there's an example of imprecation against one who betrayed the gospel in Paul's life. 2 Timothy 4.15 uh, 4, and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. Listen to this. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou where also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. But you notice it's not personal harm. You might get the wrong impression there. He did me much evil. No, it was an opposition to the words, the words of the gospel, the words of life. 
Because in the very next verse, this is how you put these things together. And I think maybe you might want to meditate on 2 Timothy 4 uh, a bit tonight. 2 Timothy 4.16, the very next verse after, after saying, May the Lord reward him. Paul said, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. You see the difference there? For opposition of the work of the gospel and being murderous against that, so to speak, may God reward such a man. But when it is simply that no one stood with me personally for my defense, may God forgive them. May God not hold it against them. See, in just three verses, you understand how these things come together. That is what turning the other cheek is. But Alexander withstood our words. Alexander was implacable against the gospel. You read of that man in 1 Timothy 1.19 and 20. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander. Listen to this. Whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Alexander is a man like Judas, betraying the cause of Christ. He deserved to be delivered to Satan. As you read in our sixth verse of this psalm, let Satan stand at his right hand. It's the same word, friend. Now you might say, well, Pastor, uh, even Paul and all the other apostles, they were sinful fallen men. Perhaps we ought not imitate them. Uh, friend, I would say to that, I don't believe that these men called down imprecations in their flesh, but out of faith and need. But the question is fair enough. But I would have you then consider the saints in heaven. Revelation 6.10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? There's no sin in heaven, friends. Their request for vengeance is not sin. But when blood is shed and spilled, when the foes of the gospel breathe out murder, it is right to ask the Lord, and the Lord only, for vengeance. Not to take it up ourselves again, but to give it to the Lord. And he says there to wait with patience and wait on the Lord's timing. But he promises, vengeance is mine. I will, that's a promise, repay. And trusting in that promise, we ask for it. So then seventh, remember there is eschatological judgment to come. The Lord is going to come as an avenger from heaven to mete out justice one day. Justice will be served and it will be far more chilling than what we read of in this psalm. There will be a lake of fire, as you heard last week. There will be torments of body and soul. So awful our mind would shatter to even think on them. The Lamb will come out of heaven and men will ask the mountains to fall on them rather than his wrath. That is what is awaiting the wicked. And so you must understand here in the psalm, it is not portending anything contrary to the nature of God or Jesus Christ. You yourself, though, must flee to the Lamb today. You must kiss the Son lest you perish in the way. Psalm 2 ends by saying, Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Praise God. In other words, why be under the curse when you can have the blessing? Flee to Jesus by faith. And all your betrayal of God and all of your persecution even of the people of God will have been heaped on Christ's head so that the vengeance you and I deserve will have been put on him 
on the day when the father said, Awake, O sword, arise against my shepherd and the man that is my fellow. May you find blessedness and not damnation in that if you would receive Jesus by faith and live forever. Well, with that, to understand some of the theology of such psalms, let's turn to our second head and discover the psalm's themes. Psalm 109 can be divided into three sections with three main themes. First, in verses 1 through 5, David asserts his blamelessness. Then, in verses 6 through 20, David asks the Lord for vengeance. And third, in verses 21 through 31, David asks the Lord for grace. Verses 1 through 5, his blamelessness. Verses 6 through 20, vengeance. Uh, Verses 21 through 31, asking for grace from the Lord. So first, David asserts his blamelessness against his enemies. Now this is vital and important for us. Uh, If you are to plead to the Lord to rise up against his enemies that torment his people, you must make sure absolutely certain that you are not suffering because of your own evil doing. That's what 1 Peter 2 tells us. In other words, you know, there are certain men like this who ask the Lord to maybe to arise against the state, O God, but they do it because they are prosecuted for committing a crime, committing murder or committing uh, theft or fraud. You must be blameless. Those things are abominable in the sight of the Lord. And then to plead with him that he would have vengeance on those who are merely doing their duty before God. You are not to do such things. David asserts his blamelessness in verse 3. They fought against me. See how important this is for the man without a cause. It was not my sin, O Lord. It was not my evil that I had done to them. Their anger and their hatred is entirely, utterly undeserved. In fact, David is perplexed by their hatred. Consider David's own actions. Verse 4, For my love, they are my adversaries. Verse 5, They have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. You know, imprecatory psalms are dangerous to your own soul unless you can say with David in Psalm 121, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Do you see that? You must be a man or a woman of peace and you are confronting those who are for war. Are you for peace or are you for war? You must examine yourself before you examine your enemies. We'll consider that in our preparatory service tonight. Before you come before the Lord, can you say of a truth, I am all for peace. I want this resolved, O God, but they come against me. So in verse 4, David says that, uh, for my love there are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. In other words, they attack, they revile, but I go to you, God, in prayer. I will not retaliate myself, but I will convict Commit vengeance to thee, O God. You saw this in our Lord Jesus Christ, how he showed love for his own enemies. He was a man of prayer. He committed himself to the Lord. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 1 Peter 2, 23. This is what the psalm is about, is committing yourself to the Lord who judges righteously. Could Judas ever, ever 
accused Jesus of a single solitary unkindness towards him. No. On the face of his love then, David recounts the fierce wrath of his enemies. Consider their character. In verse 2, they slander him. They say awful lies against him. If you've ever been slandered, friends, and I hope you haven't, few things are more painful to a good man or woman than having their reputation smeared. Jesus' own enemies called him a sinner. They called him a blasphemer. He was crucified between two thieves as the ringleader. What shame and slander the Son of God endured to save us. In verse 3, they fought against him without cause, compassed him, surrounded him with words of hatred. Hatred poured out from every side without mercy or quarter given. And you think of our Lord Jesus Christ, surrounded by cruel men as he was led to, uh, as a lamb to the slaughter. All he did was love God and love neighbor. And cruel men spoke hating, hated, hateful words against him. In verse 16, you find more of their cruel character. Listen to what these men are. Because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. This is the, the, the kind of men that we are dealing with in this psalm, friends. These men are heartless, men of no mercy. They persecuted the defenseless, they slaughtered them. The poor and needy, they exploited and crushed. They slew the broken in heart. Now that the Bible, when it says that about the broken in heart, it speaks of widows and it speaks of orphans who have already lost their husbands probably and fathers to these cruel men. And these men won't stop with killing the men, they will also kill those who are weeping over the loss of their men. Do you see the kinds of men that these are? Bloody, cruel men. Psalm 74 pleads with the Lord, have respect unto the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. Oh, let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. You see, this is the thing. The cause of the brokenhearted and the poor are God's own cause. And so David says, Arise, O God, they are your cause. And the dark places of the earth, what a phrase, turn a phrase that is. The dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. It's true. But you know what? How easy it is for us to turn a blind eye here. It's as though we have no idea what the psalm is speaking of. We play our video games. We're entertained by our media. We purchase goods with abandoned clicking buy now online. We tap and scroll aimlessly all day on $1,000 smartphones. And we say if someone hurts our feelings, we are oppressed. While our brokenhearted brethren are under cruel men in the dark places of the earth, full of the habitations of cruelty. Here's just one example for you. The Islamic terrorist group uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria It targets Christian girls. They have kidnapped thousands and sold them into sexual slavery. Schoolgirls. They are incorrigible enemies of God and the gospel. And our people are made sport. What can you do but commit ourselves to prayer to our God to arise and plead his cause? In verses 17 and 18, these cruel men love hurling curses. These are bitter men who revile, spit, and curse at the people of God. Why do they curse us? Because we are God's people. That's why. 
Why are those schoolgirls targeted? Because they want to stamp out Christianity. And you do it by targeting the young women. That said, David is blameless compared to these men, and he takes before the Lord the nature of his foes. And because of their intractable nature, David asks God to arise and judge. And that's what we consider in the second portion. That's the main theme here in verses 6 through 20. He cannot do anything else but pray such men be removed from the earth. In verse 6, he asks that the wicked be set over such men. And what you're going to find here, we don't have time to look at it, but you'll notice this contrast. What these men have done, do unto them, O God, is the main theme here. He's not asking for anything that these men have not done themselves. He says, this man is an oppressor. Set an oppressor over a man who oppressed others. That he would get a taste of his own medicine, so to speak. That he would know the misery that he himself has doled out. He prays, let Satan stand at his right hand. You might know this, that in Hebrew, the word adversary is the exact same word for Satan. This is alternatively translated then, let the adversary stand at his right hand. But I think our translators here rightly see Satan here as this psalm is a prophecy of Judas. And that man was a companion to Satan. And boys and girls, you might remember that Satan entered into Judas But Satan's a terrible companion, friend. He is the adversary. And those who follow Satan, who set him at their right hand, will find that Satan is no advocate for their cause in the end. How unlike Jesus, Satan is. Jesus stands at the right hand of the saints to save them. But Satan is a devourer, and the friend of Satan, like Judas was, will share in Satan's doom. And that's why Paul says, uh, hand such a man over to Satan. That's what this psalm is doing too. Verse 7, when the Lord judges then, David asks for condemnation. And he asks that the man's prayer be sin, because the Bible says the prayer of the wicked is an abomination. He's just praying the things that God has already declared. And maybe that's something for you to think about though. The wicked pray. Just because you're a person of prayer does not mean that you're not one of the wicked. God says he does not hear the prayer of the wicked. You must be in Christ. You must be in Christ for God to hear it. Otherwise, he says such prayers are an abomination to him in the Proverbs. In verse 8, we read, Let his days be few and let another take his office. Uh, This is, of course, directly prophesied in the book of Acts against Judas. Remove him from office so that the sorrow he exerts through his position would end. And it concerns not just that first Judas, but all the Judases on the earth who would seek to betray and harm Christ's body. In verses 9 to 15, uh, the Lord is asked to remove the man from the earth. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. What's the plain meaning of that, boys and girls? What's the deduction? Take the man's life. If his wife is going to be a widow and his children fatherless, take the man's life. Again, not anything that this man hasn't already done. And the verses that follow also ask the Lord to cut off the man's posterity. That's a terrible curse and makes us tremble. Nothing, of course, is known of Judas's lineage because the man's posterity was cut off. Uh, Have you not seen such judgments in the Bible, friends? What about Haman, who sought to murder the people of God and wipe them all out from the face of the earth? He himself hung on the gallows with his own sons. 
so that his posterity is ended. His wife was left a widow. Think on the Exodus, right? Again, I think maybe we've read too many children's versions of these stories. What was the judgment on Egypt? The death of the firstborn. In all these things, God caused murderous men to reap the very thing they sowed. Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. David is simply saying, do what you have promised, O God. Cause men who destroy homes, widows and orphans, reap exactly what they have sowed. This section of imprecations ends with verse 20. Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord and of them that speak evil against my soul. He submits his plea for justice and leaves it there with the Lord, doing what Romans 12.19 calls for. Again, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Then in the third section, he comes now before God, and having left vengeance with God, says, Oh, would you sustain me by your grace? Verse 21 opens by saying, But do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake, because uh, thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. His argument is, Sustain me and save me for thy name's sake, for thy glory, Lord, uh, for the cause of Christ, because I and all of you have been named by the name of Christ in your baptism. You are named by, their, by the name of the triune God. And he says, you are a God full of mercy. Even as Jonah said, surely if you have mercy on your own enemies, you will have mercy on me, O God. And he brings before the Lord a reminder of his pitiful condition in verses 22 through 25. See what has happened to him. I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declineth. I am tossed up and down as the locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth the fatness. I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. I am poor. I am needy. My heart is wounded within me. I'm ready. Look of how picturesque this is and think of this as a man. I am like a, a shadow that is ready to disappear in the noonday sun. It's a picture of a man about to vanish. He's been tossed up and down, and he has been on his knees fasting before the Lord. Skin and bones, mocked and reproached, a byword to all who pass by. And surely you see something of our Lord Jesus Christ in this, don't you? This is what Christ suffered supremely. And as his enemies have made him this, he has become this pitiful creature. And you see that This man is at the end of his ropes and is about to wither away and die because of the enemy he had once prayed for and even loved. And I have to ask, friends, does your religion have a category for a man like this? Does it? Tormented, in pain, under severe persecution. And I fear in the U.S. most Christian churches have no category for this. Recently, I try to stay off Twitter for various reasons, but I upload sermons there. And I saw a a short video of a pastor in India. He had this little, tiny, one-room, small church building. And he was being dragged out by several men and being beaten, beaten mercilessly. And does your religion have a category for what we do when such men suffer like that? 
I hope it does, friends. Does it even have songs to sing to God for such a man? True religion does. The Bible does right here. So, in such a condition, David prays, Save me for the glory of God, verses 26 through 27. Help me, O Lord my God, O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. What is beautiful about leaving vengeance to the Lord is when he saves the poor and needy, the one who is wasting away, God gets the glory. When insignificant Jews were saved from Haman or from the Pharaoh, God gets the glory. When Constantine ceased persecuting Christians, God gets the glory. And so it is whenever the Lord saves us from our persecutors. And it was the prayer to the Lord that miraculously brought deliverance. And we say, God, you have done this, not us. And so we consider the Psalm's conclusion in verses 30 and 31. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. This is the hope and the sure faith that he has. That even when everything is upside down, seems that way anyway. And it seems as if this man is going to perish. He says, no, like Job, I will praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my mouth. I will praise him among the multitude, among the living. Even in his affliction, as his faith is in God, he knows he will live forever among the saints. And because here Christ stands at the right hand of the poor, we will all be delivered. No matter our trials, no matter our tribulation, we say, let the wicked have Satan, the adversary, at their right hand. But we will have the Lord Jesus ever stand at our right hand. They will have an adversary, but we will have an advocate. Such that no one can condemn us before God, not even Satan. And so the psalm ends with hope after seeking the judgment of God. It releases vengeance to the Lord, and, and that's what hope does, doesn't it? It looks beyond the trial, it looks beyond the persecution, it looks beyond the crushing weight, and it says, I know all will be right at the end, O God, and so I gladly leave this burden of my soul to you, however you wish to dispose of it. You wish to dispose of it by putting burning coals on the head of these men? Fine. If you wish to turn them to faith and repentance and heap those coals on Jesus, fine. But I will hope in God and I know what he does is right. Righteousness will prevail, wickedness will be put away, and every tear of mine will be wiped away. And so with that then, we consider our final heading, uses. I'll be brief because I've already mentioned these, these three general uses I want to restate. First, sing it united to the Lord Jesus. You enter into the sufferings of Christ in such psalms. And you feel and you get a sensation of just how awful it is. I, I, I suspect none of you here have been reduced to this condition. But Jesus has. And you sing in him. And you feel what our Savior experienced in being betrayed by Judas. And maybe then this is a very appropriate psalm as you prepare for the Lord's Supper this week. As you think of what our Savior endured. Second, you sing it and pray it against the intractable, implacable enemies of persecuted churches. 
There are some men who are ruthless. And I don't mean, in our context, we probably have to be clear here, I don't mean Richard Dawkins, right? I mean men who slaughter Christians and laugh with joy. Men seemingly gripped by Satan himself. Men like Judas. Men like Julian the Apostate in church history. Or the men of Boko Haram. You sing it that God would remove them from the earth. And third, then, you sing it on behalf of your brethren. You bring them to mind. You think of brethren who are being slaughtered. Maybe you go to persecution.org and you find where the, the people of God, like, like those in Nigeria, are just being uh, stamped out seemingly. And you say, I will sing this for their sake on their behalf, O God. What, what else can we do when we see them dragged out of homes, when they're being raped for being Christians, when they're being stoned and burned alive? Take Psalm 109 and sing it for them in solidarity. And God says, you may worship me with that. Well, time is up. Let us thank the Lord that he knows our difficulties and has given us a song to praise him in every circumstance for every trouble and every trial and every tribulation, even in these most dreadful cases. What hymnal is so perfect as God's Psalter? Be thankful that the Lord, once betrayed and persecuted himself, sympathizes with you, and he will arise to deliver his beloved, just as he arose to receive Stephen, just as he arose when Paul was persecuting the church. Those who touch us, touch the apple of Christ's own eye, pray for our enemies and pray for their salvation, but if they will not repent, pray that they are removed so that the persecution and torment of Christ's heartbroken saints may end. May God bless our meditation and our use of this psalm. If able, please arise for prayer. O God, we thank Thee that Jesus Christ has suffered so greatly for our salvation, betrayed even by one He loved, betrayed by a kiss, and persecuted for no cause. We thank you that this sympathetic heart not only died for us on the cross, but has risen again and is at God's right hand and has his eye set upon us, seeing those who would touch us in a way to destroy us. Oh, Father, we pray for all those who are persecuted around the earth. We confess, oh God, that in our society here, uh, we have really no sense of what they suffer. Uh, we can easily be velvet-mouthed, as a former divine said, as we come to these kinds of psalms, because we have it so good by your blessing. And we don't know the grief of mothers who have lost their husband and their daughter to evil men and are now about to be destroyed and consumed because they simply believe on the Lord. And so we pray, Father, that you would protect your beloved people around the earth, that you would protect them from the adversary, that you would deliver such wicked men to Satan. And it, uh, ultimately, Father, we pray that they would repent of their sin, but if not, remove them from the face of the earth, that they would not torment your beloved. Deliver thy beloved, Father, that we may praise thee for what you have done. Help us to never have vengeance in the heart, but to give it up to you, O God, to dispose of as you, as you uh, find to be of good pleasure. Bless your people here, and may we find, Father, great comfort knowing that God uh, adores his people 
and is against those who would harm Christ's people. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.